Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for the gospel of Matthew and Lord, um, this just beautiful testimony uh, by Matthew about Jesus and, and Lord, how he recorded um, so much about Jesus, the, his genealogy, authenticating who he was, showing much prophecy, um, documenting his fulfillment. And Lord, as we finish the Sermon on the Mount, he's shown us Jesus' teaching, which um, <clears throat> was like no other. Uh, I pray that... Um, the words that we've learned from the Sermon on the Mount and the teaching, Lord, would uh, really resonate with us, that it would sink deep within our minds and hearts, uh, Lord, that we would, um, that it would help us, Lord, in our journey with you in this life. Father, I pray that you would help us uh, to navigate this passage today. Uh, We look to you uh, for help. Uh, We pray that you would uh, open our hearts, Lord, that we would... um, not resist that which you uh, share with us through your word. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. Matthew chapter 7, verse 28. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority, not as their scribes. And Father, we do thank you for this passage. We turn to you and we ask you for help now. And it's in Christ's good name. Amen. So these two verses, they're short, they're sweet, they're concise. I spent some of the week sort of worrying that I wouldn't have enough to say. But then I realized I don't think anybody's ever uh, complained about a pastor going short on a Sunday. And don't worry, I didn't go short last message. So I don't know if I'm setting you guys up for... (laughs) Uh, we, we transition. This is, um, this is one of the places in Matthew where as Matthew is sort of laying out his gospel, we've spent months in the Sermon of, in the, on the Mount. Last week we concluded the Sermon on the Mount. And here Matthew, uh, inspired by the Spirit, sort of sets this line of demarcation. The Sermon on the Mount has ended we're going to transition in chapter 8, looking at different material, the, the whole how the story unfolds. It sort of shifts from a, from a literary perspective. And, um, and, and Matthew, in these two verses, basically says two things. He, he says that Jesus, uh, um, Jesus taught as one having authority, sort of contrasted with the scribes and really the Pharisees and their teachers, that he taught with authority that wasn't like um, that of the, their scribes. And he also says that when he finished teaching these words, the people were amazed. That you, you could translate that they were in awe. They were overwhelmed with the, the message and the content that Jesus had shared. And so that's what we're going to focus on today is these two things. I want to deal with them in reverse order that they're presented in these two verses. So the very last verse says, He was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. The first thing I want to address is, well, how did their scribes teach? What did their scribes say? If you were to do a historical background and examine, well, how did, how did rabbis 
scribes teach during Jesus' time. The way they taught was very confusing. It, it, would, it left people with uncertainty. Um, a, a rabbi would be teaching and he would say, Rabbi A says this about this particular passage that, that we're in. There's some good things that he says and he'll point out a few things. And then he'd move on and he'd say, well, Rabbi B, concerning this very same passage, says these things about this same passage that are slightly different than Rabbi A. And in some ways, he sort of contradicts what Rabbi A says, but what he says also is very good. And now let me introduce Rabbi C. Rabbi C, concerning this passage, says something that is way different than the Rabbi A and Rabbi B, but what he says is really good. And so often the hearers would be like, which is it? And so there'd be sort of questions. And it's not that these scribes were, were bad. It's that they were teaching something that, that wasn't theirs. I don't know if any of you have had the opportunity to, have, um, to sit down to talk with, maybe at a, a conference or something where there's an author of a book and they begin sharing, or maybe somebody who was an author of a, of a particular uh, writing, sort of like that was a peer-reviewed sort of longer article. I've noticed that when authors speak on their own work or their own teaching, they know it like the back of their hand. They'll be speaking and they'll say, somebody will have a question, well, I have a question about this point that you wrote about in your book. And then the author, without the book there, will say, oh, well, on page 64, paragraph 2, I said this, and then they'll begin to expound upon what they meant in their heart. And nobody can disagree with what they're saying about their writing because they're the author. They, they, they wrote it all completely. They, they know the content, they know the heart, they know the meaning. And so Jesus, in many ways, is an author. And he's the author of this book made up of many books that we have in our hands. And if we were to go back through the Sermon on the Mount, it sort of dawned on me this week, it didn't really catch my attention too deeply going little by little through the Sermon on the Mount. But if you were to go back and sort of search for the phrase, but I say to you, or I say to you, you'll find that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this 14 times. He, when he teaches, he speaks on his own authority his understanding of the scriptures and his understanding of the scriptures is absolutely correct because he is God. He is the one who authored this. So as he on the Sermon on the Mount was presenting truths to them, he would say things like, you've heard it said, and he'd explain the teaching that they'd been taught by their scribes. So often their scribes have sort of lowered the bar, lowered the intention that God had in mind, and they'd made it in a way that it was sort of more palatable, more doable for, for, the, for the humans. And Jesus then, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, says, but I say to you, this is what it really means. And then he'd explain the teaching. And then by the time you get through the end of the Sermon on the Mount, if you're honest with yourself, you're left with, uh, I am totally unqualified to enter into the kingdom of God. And that's why at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, as we're left humbled, he then gives his invitation. Verse 13, enter through the narrow gate. 
The gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who will enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And Jesus is trying to lead them, trying to lead us to life. It really is beautiful. And so the way Jesus taught, because he has true authority when it comes to the scriptures. He was never trapped. He was never caught off guard as the lawyers and and the Pharisees, as we work our way through the gospel of Matthew, we will see times when we see Pharisees, lawyers, intentionally go up to Jesus with the intent of tripping him up, pigeonholing him into an air by sort of like legality, like where a human would trip up. Jesus is dealing with people that he created with the scriptures which he authored. And so as they come to him, he was able to just zip their mouths in a way. Then he took the proud and he humbled them because he has authority. And, and so we read this, for he was teaching them as one having authority. As I turn the page on my notes, I'm t- I don't want to say I'm terrified, but I've been dreading turning the page here. This whole page of my notes is basically all of those verses up there. And my fear is when I start going over sort of a a flyover of Scripture is that we start checking out. And so I want to kind of hopefully avoid you guys checking out because I want to investigate this authority. What is... The scriptures say concerning Jesus and his authority. The Bible opens up with probably some of the most controversial thoughts, um, fighting worlds for most of humanity. For in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, or the earth and the heaven. I think it's the heavens and the earth. My Bible memory is really bad. Oh, that's right here before me. Heavens and the earth. This is something that scientists, or I, not, I can't lump all scientists. There are many scientists who discredit that God had anything to do with the creation of the world, the galaxies as we know them. And so the scriptures open up with this bold claim In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. A few months ago, I was at a chaplain's conference and and an officer spoke to this group of chaplains. The guy was hilarious. He, um, he, He knew, I'd invited him to speak to the chaplains to help the chaplains get into sort of um, a, a, a law enforcement officer's sort of world so that they would be able to better minister. And so this, this cop gets up in front of all the chaplains. He says, hey guys, when I first encounter a guy on the street, I always make him go sit on the curb, cross their legs, put their hands behind their back. Why do you guys think I do this? So us soft chaplains start raising their hands. Well, you do that so you can have tactical advantage. Because if they're going to run, they got to uncross their legs, they got to go to their knees, they got to stand up, and so you'll be able to like respond. Yeah, that's true, but that's not why I do it. And so after a bunch of people give their reasons, he's, they're like, hey, the reason I do this is 
I race to the scene of something. My adrenaline's going. All my awareness is there. I want to sort of deal with stuff right away. If, if things are going to go south, I don't want to wait 15 minutes till my guard's down, till I start thinking everybody's fine. And so right away when I see a person that causes trouble, I say, hey, can you go sit down and just uh, cross your legs over there? Because he said, if there's going to be a fight, that person is going to say, well, I can't say what he said. Quoting whatever. If, if, if the person is going to be unruly with me, and they're going to start resisting, and they're going to start going after me, I'd rather it get it over with right from the beginning, while all of my awareness is up. And the reason I'm bringing this up, you're like, why are you bringing this up? I think God kind of does that. The opening words of the Bible, in the beginning, God created everything. And in our culture right away, you go to our universities, you go to your neighbors, you, go, you start with that first sentence of the Bible, you very likely are going to have issues if people are honest. There's a great claim. Um, out of order of the scriptures I listed, John 1, 1, John 1, 1 through 5, uh, the apostle John, who was the youngest during Jesus' life, he was like Jesus' kid brother. By the time he writes the gospel of John, he's now the only remaining uh, disciple he is an old man. He's had much wisdom over his life. The Lord has inspired him, led him. And, and before he dies, he pens these books, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. And he opens the Gospel of John with these words. In the beginning was the Word. Now what was the beginning? I believe that the beginning was Genesis 1.1, in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and follow the word Word, as it's going to sort of, as we get there, you'll come to see that the Word is Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Skipping down to verse 18, he then says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And so John, as he opens his gospel, he says, Jesus, back to Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. He says Jesus was there, Jesus was a part of it, Jesus was the agent of creation. That all things came into being through him. None of us, no human has seen God. But Jesus comes to earth, and Jesus living his life, Jesus teaching everything about Jesus is the perfect picture of God that we as humans can see. It says that Jesus explained him, exegeted him. Paul, the great Jewish scholar, Saul of Tarsus, he was the intellectual mind during Jesus' life that was like no other. 
He was not a believer. He was persecuting the church. He was killing Christians. And then he encounters Christ on the road to Damascus and his life was forever changed. This man that we know as the Apostle Paul, everything changed for him. Uh, scripture tells us that after his conversion, he sort of goes offline. He, he goes to the desert. He's he, for 14 or 17 years, depending on how you kind of do the math of the writing, he disappears for 14 to 17 years, I believe, basically restudying the whole of the Old Testament, which he had memorized, which he knew, which he was a leading teacher of the day, and restudying to see how Christ the Messiah appeared all through the Old Testament. And then he comes on scene, and, and next to Jesus, I would probably think that Paul is... is Number two, for transforming this world for Christ. Most of what we have in the New Testament concerning church was written in large part by the Apostle Paul. And this Paul, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 17, writes this concerning Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, just like the Apostle John says, that no one has seen God but Jesus explains, and Paul says, this, this image of the invisible God, which we as humans can't see, Jesus is the image of that invisible God. The firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him, that he's the agent doing the creation. And who is the creation for? And it says, and for him. He is before all things, and in all things, wait, I said that, and in him all things hold together. I'm like a first grader when it comes to like science. But I've, I've hung out with a lot of guys who are very scientific. Uh, my my father-in-law has his degree in biochemistry, and and it's always fun, and he's a pastor now, but he's, he has his degree in biochemistry. It's always fun watching him debate with scientists or those who think they're scientists that are not. And they'll eventually, like, essentially flip over the card table, so to speak, in the argument and say, well, neither one of us are scientists. You're just being more persuasive with your words. And they look at me like, well, actually, I have my degree in biochemistry from Cal Poly. I, I, I was a scientist. And then they slam the door on him and they run away. It's, and then I try to recreate the argument, but then I like get lost like three words into it. But the one thing I know, is the second law of thermodynamics says that everything is moving from order to disorder. So at the cellular level, the scientists will tell you, but they can't explain what's going on, is that cells somehow, there's an inertia sort of pulling them together, but over time, they no longer hold together and they eventually sort of separate, and that's sort of destruction, death, dying. So it's always, this just, so Jesus creates all things. All things are created for him. And it says that he holds all things together. And so then when we die, so we're basically not held together anymore. It's not by accident. It's like that, that God takes us. If the scientists could only figure out how to hold things together at the cellular level, we wouldn't see death and decay ever again. 
But the problem is, Jesus stops holding things together, but that's on it. I'm way off. The author of Hebrews says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and prophets, he, let me start over. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, in many portions, in many ways, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he, that's Jesus, made the world. So the author of Hebrews tells us that Christ is the one who spoke everything into existence with the Father. Going down to Romans chapter 15, verses 4 through 5, this same Paul, he's trying to go to Rome. He hasn't met the church in Rome. Romans has been referred to as the Christian constitution, sort of Paul, before he goes, has to explain himself to the church. What does he believe? What are his thoughts? What are his doctrines? What's going on? So Paul, as an attorney, lays out this beautiful, clear, concise, just beautiful document explaining the Christian life. And as he gets near to the end, he writes this, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant to you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. Now the reason I bring this one up is this one, Paul, I don't know about you, but sometimes reading through the Bible, there's passages I get stuck in the Old Testament. I'm like, what? And the, like, what does this have to do with me? Like, how does this fit? And I love that Paul, when he looks at the scripture, he says, if you want to know one thing, the overarching theme about all of the scriptures, it's to give you hope. And hope, I would suggest, is found in Christ. If we go to Luke's account of the gospel in Luke 24, verse 27, this is following the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Jesus, before his death, he had limitations. He subjected himself to, to, to a human body and, and to things that we're governed by, like gravity, and I can't walk through... Well, I mean, somebody strong enough can maybe throw me through a wall, but I can't really walk through a wall and leave the wall intact. I just saw the Mr. Incredible a little while ago, and so I, I have that image in my mind. So I call myself, just to be clear what I meant by going through a wall before the kids grab me and say, I, we can get you through the wall. Um, Jesus had raised from the dead. Following his resurrection, he no longer subjected to the same things. He, he would show up in, in rooms where the apostles are locked down for fear of their lives. He would just appear, and then he'd disappear. And so in Luke 24, there's a story. I think it's, I should have looked it up between services, but I, I can't remember if it was two guys or three guys. But they're, they're, they're walking down the road. It's following the crucifixion. They're totally just in awe. Like, how did Jesus get killed? He was supposed to be the Messiah. Like, what? How? I didn't see that coming. And then all of a sudden, Jesus appears just walking down the road with them. But he hid his identity from them. And so as they're talking, he kind of looks at them like, sounds like something happened in Jerusalem this weekend. What, what, what's going on? And they're looking like, 
where have you been, man? Like, are you crazy? The whole world is talking about Jesus was put to death. And there's this funny exchange between them. And then I think the world's greatest Bible study in human history happens. Jesus, still hiding his identity, sits them down, and we read this in Luke 24, 27. Then beginning with Moses and with all of the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So here's Jesus going through the Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi, showing them how he's all through those pages providing hope, as Paul mentions. And then at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 7, verse 21 through 22, are some of the most hor- like horrifying verses to me in all of the Bible. And, and I, I kind of like it. I mean, I, it, it's good. Because for the Christian who's on track, I, I totally believe that if you're saved, if you've placed your faith in Christ, your salvation is secure. However, if you're a Christian who's secure, God doesn't necessarily provide assurance for those Christians who are walking in the flesh. And so I'm thankful that God does that because when I was walking away from the Lord as a Christian, he's horrified me with these verses. In verse 21, chapter 7, the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says to them, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. It's a scary couple verses. These are people who claim to follow after Jesus, but they really had not trusted in him. But the reason I bring this up, we're back on the subject of Jesus' authority. By the end of the Sermon on the Mount, what I want to point out to you about those verses, Jesus is speaking about the day. The day when every human will stand before God and give an account for their lives. For the non-believer, you're going to get... you're going to give an account for rejecting Christ. For those who know Christ, I don't think it's going to be a judgment. We're going to give an account for how do we live our lives. What did you do with, with, with the gifts and the resources that God gave you? How did you manage that which he entrusted you with? But at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus looks upon this crowd. This is the, ver- this is, this is the location behind me, that picture. That's the, the place of the Galilee where Jesus gave the sermon. And he says, on that day, you will give an account to who? To me. So when you have friends and non-believers try to tell you that nowhere in the scriptures did Jesus ever claim to be God, they simply haven't read the New Testament. All through the Gospels, Jesus makes assertions that he is the Messiah, that he is God. Ultimately, that's why he was arrested. That's why he was arrested, is because he claimed to be God. 
And so, when we look at verse 29, for he was one teaching as having authority, not as their scribes. Jesus has authority, not because he was an eloquent speaker, because he had great use of rhetoric, that he um, was persuasive in how he taught. No, he had authority because he is God, that he created us, that he is the one who gave us the word of God that we have. And so when he teaches on it, he ultimately has authority. And, And to me, in light of our culture, especially in the last couple of weeks, if you've been watching the news, there's the things that have been most disconcerting for me in the last couple of weeks are not necessarily that the like that our nation's not following for God doesn't surprise me. It shouldn't surprise you. Like when a non-believer acts like a non-believer, that shouldn't surprise you. It shouldn't surprise us. I'm dumbfounded at Christians who who are so surprised that the world's not following after Jesus. Guys, it shouldn't surprise you. What surprises me is when believers, due to cultural popularity and things that are culturally now acceptable, we begin to, to rewrite the words of God. That we, in effect, take Jesus off of his throne and we place ourselves on the throne, sort of determining what's right and acceptable in our own eyes. And I'm not trustworthy to do that. And I know talking to my friends, even not my friends, people will look at me and they're like, well, you're just brainwashed, Gunner. You've just been raised with this. That's why you buy into it. It's like, you don't even know me. Are you kidding me? Like two months ago, a few of us, we went on vacation down to Nicaragua. Turns out in Nicaragua is hot. It's so hot. And I'm going with like another pastor and then a very godly family. And the first day in Nicaragua, I'm like, I'm no longer going to be referring to hot as Africa hot. I'm going to say it's Nicaragua hot. It's like 95 degrees and 80% humidity. And I'm there as their pastor and I'm realizing the first day is I'm going to have to be swimming. Like, I'm going to be swimming all in that pool at the house. And so the first night we're down on the beach, and so the whole group, and I look at them like, hey, guys, you remember uh, yesterday at church how I mentioned that I have tattoos? I have tattoos, and I'm going to have to take off my shirt tomorrow? And um, I just want to make sure that we can still be friends, that you'll still, like, come to church, and they're like, I don't want to, like, because if you guys need me swimming in a long sleeve black t-shirt, I could do that. Like, no, I wouldn't do that. Um, <clears throat> but they're kind of like cracking up. They're like, Gunnar, you're making, you're making a big deal. But my point is I was not raised in the church. I was a huge antagonist to the church. I couldn't stand Christians at times. When my friend nagged me to go to church and I kept going to church... I would, I would go because there was free pizza and I was 22 and I like, free pizza goes a long way in my book at 22. So I go for the free pizza and, uh, and the guy would talk, he'd teach out the Bible and I would literally just take notes of everything I disagreed with. 
And then the whole bike ride home, I would just tear into my friends that invited me every week. I'm like, you guys are idiots, and on and on and on. Then I kept going. And then as I was sort of attacking my Christian friends, they were coming back with some... They were kind of just coming back with sort of like, they feel this and I feel that. They were coming back with like evidence. Serious claims. And so then I started... Well, my life was a total mess, so that, was, that helped them because like, what I was doing my, wasn't really working out. And then as I began to investigate more and more, it was like, man, this isn't just about like, you know, lofty sort of faith. There's like evidence. And, and the more you study, the more you, you realize, like if you start going into textual criticism and how do we know that the Bible is authentic and reliable, it's overwhelming. Like, it's overwhelming, like the amount of evidence supporting the documents where we get the word of God from, that, 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 that this book that we hold in our hands is what, between 2,000, depending on where you start, 2,000 and like 6,000 years old. And that there is, uh, in literary documentation, just as they measure any written work, the evidence is overwhelming. The, the amount of evidence on the New Testament validating the claims that are made, it's overwhelming. Like buildings and buildings and buildings of documents, both of the scriptures and external evidence, like the historians during that era. We barely have enough evidence compared to the New Testament evidence to Jesus, which is like warehouses type of information. Going back to like George Washington, I, I believe that the evidence of George Washington is like a, a handful of like hats you could fill with stuff. And that's 200 years. It's, the evidence is over overwhelming. And I, I'm not going to spend all day talking about that, but there is a case for Christ out there. Free, take him. The point is Jesus had authority. And so when I come to the scriptures... I wasn't just brainwashed. I came at them critically. I came at them resisting. And the longer that I'm a Christian, the more research I do, it's overwhelming the evidence that's here that documents the, the, the validness of who Jesus is. And, and the more I study even about subjects like evolution and these sorts of things, there's way more faith on that side of the argument if we're honest with ourselves. And so Jesus spoke with authority. And so when I come, I'm not going to change his words. I might have a hard time with some of the stuff. Jesus spoke more about hell than anybody else. There's like strong warnings. And so when I read this, he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. When we come to the words of Jesus, when we're confronted with the things that he says, it should cause us to tremble. But the beauty of it all is that if you really listen to his words and you follow them through, as he cuts us to our core, as he ends the Sermon on the Mount, he says, guys, this is the way to life. I've done it all. That song we sang before I got up, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. And this truth, this reality 
should cause us to stand in amazement. When Jesus had finished these words, verse 28, the crowds were amazed in awe at his teaching. There was no talking back to him. There was no debating. There was was no resistance in in trying to say what he said was wrong. Matthew, up to this point, it's been just a brilliant... As I'm teaching through Matthew, I'm falling in love with this book. This book is written to the Jewish people. All of the New Testament, like the, the Bible is a Jewish book. Like, unless you're Jewish, which very few of us are, we've been grafted in. And, and Matthew, he starts out so boring. If you go through all the Gospels, okay, Matthew, Mark just starts out right out of the gates. And like, he's like, we're going through Matthew or Mark on Wednesday nights. He just hits the ground running all sorts of excitement. Luke comes out the same way, like, ah, I've collected all of this evidence and it's all of these things and he begins telling the story. Uh, John is so beautiful. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word, you know, all the, this is, wow, this is gripping. Then we come to the beginning of Matthew. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah, and his brothers, and Judah was the father of Perez. I'm like getting sleepy already, and it just goes. So boring. I don't know about you, but I have like an unwritten law. Like if I'm trying to read through the Bible, like I'm allowed to skip genealogies, and it counts. (laughs) As soon as I see so-and-so begets so-and-so, I just try to figure out where does it end. It's like... I'm supposed to read a chapter a day. I got the whole chapter nailed because I'm done. Fastest violin of the day. He starts out with his 17 verses. To us, it seems so unimportant, but if you're a Jew, if you don't have the genealogy, it's not about, if, if he's the Messiah, he has to show that genetically he follows the line. There's also other problems that you'd have to go back to Matthew 1.1. You can go online and listen to my teaching on this. But Jesus has the DNA and he also has the, the legal rights to royalty. And Matthew shows both. So he documents from genealogy Jesus' authority. Then he goes into telling the story of John the Baptist and Malachi. And he documents that Jesus fulfills prophecy that the Jews would know. He documents that his authority comes by fulfilling fulfillment of prophecy which to fulfill all of the you just can't fake fulfilling prophecy and Jesus nails it on every single point and then we come to the Sermon on the Mount I hadn't figured out I'm still wrestling with it somehow the temptations of Christ there's got to be a if I was a better pastor I alliterate something and make something fit but I there's a temptation of Christ in there but then we come to his teaching the Sermon on the Mount he begins laying out his teaching chapters 5 6 7 his Teaching was like no other. His teaching was one with authority. As we go into chapter 8 next week, the, whole, the, the climate of the story changes. They go out. And, and, and Matthew's going to document his authority through his works. We're going to see a leper cleansed. We're going to see 
a centurion slave healed. We're going to see Peter's mother-in-law healed. We're going to see Jesus calm the storm. All in chapter 8, all of this, now that his teaching, all of these things that Matthew showed, now he's going to begin showing us through his, his power, authenticating his authority. And it's beautiful. We'll see people respond in different ways. And one commentator, I think he did it on accident, but it had me cracking up. But you'll notice he says in the first three accounts, these are, these are outsiders. These are those outside of the faith, those outside of the norm. They, they were on the margins of society. A leper was in isolation. He had no community, no friendships. If he was to go anywhere near people, he had to cover his mouth and say, unclean, unclean, unclean. So people could scatter from them, no human touch. And yet Jesus cleanses him. Then we see this, this centurion, a Gentile. And Jesus is going to say by his reaction that this man demonstrated greater faith than in all of Israel, someone outside of Israel. And then speaking, the, the commentator said there were three, and then I get to like the third one was a mother-in-law you know, on the margins. And I'm like, I think he, he was talking about women, but it just kind of struck me as funny, but maybe that's just my mind. You guys didn't. That, that here the mother-in-laws are the outcasts of society, you know. I hope my mother-in-law doesn't listen to this. That she's wonderful. I, like, but, but he goes to this, a, a woman, and a woman in the culture was sort of marginalized. And then from there we see a young rich ruler who rejects part of Israel. Jesus puts some instruction, he rejects it. Then there's a disciple that comes up and says, I want to follow you, and Jesus says, fine, follow me. He says, ah, but I need to also, my father's dying. It didn't mean like his father's like on hospice. It meant like eh, his father's 60, 70, the next 10 years or so, his dad, 10, 15 years, his dad might die. So he needs to go make sure he's taking care of his father. He rejects Jesus' claim to follow him. And then the disciples are in the boat. Storm kicks up. They have no faith. And so we see that as we transition here, we see different people responding different ways to Jesus' authority. And I used to, when I wasn't a believer, and, and, and maybe even early on, if I'm totally honest, even now when my, my faith is not the strongest, I don't know if you've been like this, but I think, oh, only if I lived, only if I lived during those days. If I saw Jesus heal leprosy, if I saw him raised from the grave, if I saw these things, then I would be such a good Christian. I would have so much faith. But then the longer I've walked with God, the reality is, is I know that they were humans too. I would probably respond the same way that I am now, the same way I struggle. And as we take communion today, we're, we're pressed to this point of how do we respond to the claim? Because, see, communion, this is broken crackers and grape juice. There's, there's nothing really, like, powerful in of themselves. But it reminds me of old, I think it was Lombardi, who led his team to all sorts of things, and he'd have these, you know, Super Bowl players, and he's famous for, he'd start out the season, and he'd hold out a football player to these, these, these giants of football. Say, man... This 
is a football. And we're like, what? Like, of course it's football. We've won Super Bowls, right? But it's funny, like, this is the basics. And I believe that's what Christi- this communion is for us. Christians, this is the cross. See, I think we come to Christ and then we kind of move on and we think that we've grown past the cross into more spiritual things. And I think that I, I, in all reality, I think I should probably take communion every single day. Like I would do it every single week, but then there's like, there's debates on both sides and it's, so we do it whenever I feel like it kind of thing, whenever I see the text. And this is a reminder to us to put down your Christianese, put down your, like, you're so great. You might just be a legalist, or maybe you're trying to fake things. What, what this does is we come to communion, it forces us back to the cross. As we take the cracker, it's a reminder that Jesus' body was broken for us, for your sins, for my sins. He did it all. There's nothing that you can do to earn your righteousness. There's no work, nothing. Grace. God did it all. And that's mind-boggling. We are living people where we, we exchange for money. If somebody sends you a birthday card, then you're obligated to send them a birthday card. Somebody writes you a thing. I get thank you notes. And I feel when I get a thank you note, it's like, I think I'm supposed to send a thank you note back for saying a thank you because they said thank you, so I probably should write, thank you for sending me the thank you note. Because that's how we work, right? Somebody does something for you, you're obligated to do something back. That's not how God works. God did it. Period. In Matthew 26, verses 26 through 32, I find Matthew's account of the the Lord's Supper and and, uh, heading to the cross just beautiful. He writes, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And when he'd taken a cup and given it thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many in forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. After singing a hymn, they went to Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, you will fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. This is beautiful. And I just imagine this cold night. It's dark. They'd left the table. Jesus knows his hours come, that he's about to be arrested. And he looks at them and he says, guys, you know what? I'm not going to drink, like, well, kind of going back, he's not going to drink great like wine until the, the kingdom banquet when he'll see them again. And I don't think that they understood what he was saying. He's like, I'm going to be arrested and you guys are going to scatter like cockroaches in light. You're going to abandon me. You're going to ditch me in my darkest hour. But do you hear the love in his voice? He says, it's okay. It's prophecy. And when I rise again, you guys will come back to me. And I'll be waiting for you in Galilee. It's just this beautiful picture. You know, communion, one of these things that they, uh, historically, during that time when a, when a, when a, a man proposed to a girl 
and they were betrothed. Uh, they were engaged. He would go back. He'd, he'd, he'd build a little house and he'd get everything ready. And then he would, when he was ready to actually get married, he would then go back to the girl and he would offer a glass of wine to her. And historians tell us that, the, that, this, that this wine glass sort of symbolized the husband say, or the, the, the groom saying, I, I've prepared a place. I, I'd like to consummate a relationship and get married. And everything I have is yours. Like, we'll become one. And we're, we're known as the bride of Christ, the church. But there's another aspect of this tradition. See, the bride at this point didn't have to take the cup. But by her taking the cup, she's saying, I accept your gift and also everything of mine is yours. You have my life. And so as we take communion, this is, this is the beauty of it. In times past, we, I used to pass it out, and sometimes that was, like, I think I kind of stopped passing it out because, like, oh, man, there's, like, if, every, if we pass it out, the church is so small that if we have four, four people pass it out, then the whole church is up front here. So it's like, why don't we just have people come up to the front? But then as I started thinking about communion, I don't want to pass the elements seat to seat and make it easy for you to take communion. In Corinthians, Paul writes that people were taking communion inappropriately. And they were dying as a result of it. And so I want to make it clear why you take communion. To make you come up here to to take the elements. I want to make it hard for you. I don't want the person who's not a Christian to see the crackers going by and say, I'm going to just take a cracker and take some juice. I want us to think through. And so first off, communion is for those who have trusted in Christ for salvation. If you are not a Christian or you're not sure, there's not a six-week Sunday school class to become a Christian. There's no fancy prayer to pray. Becoming a Christian is probably the easiest sort of legal exchange because when it's probably more uncomfortable than I'm even comfortable with because I would do it a whole lot differently. But I'm not God. The Bible makes it clear that the, when the truth, the gospel is presented, that Jesus, according to Scripture, died. He did it for your sins, for my sins. He was buried, and then he rose again according to Scriptures. And Paul in Ephesians 1.13 says that after hearing the gospel, you believed. So becoming a Christian as simple as like really two words in your heart is when you're confronted with the cross of Christ and you reach the point after examining, you say, I believe. I believe. At that moment, whether you realize it or not, the scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit seals you until the day of redemption. And so for those of us who take communion, we're to do a couple things. We're we're to take the elements. We're to reflect on the, the broken body of Christ that you're not a good Christian because you stopped cussing or you started tucking in your shirt or you started combing your hair or whatever it is. You're a Christian. The thing that enables you to be a Christian is that Jesus made the sacrifice for you. And so when we come to take communion, we're confronted with that truth. We who are Christian, it's not like I was a sinner. I'm a saved sinner now. 
and I'm confronted with my sin as I take communion, and I'm called, we're told, to confess our sins, and the scripture says that as we confess our sins, he is faithful to cleanse us, according to 1 John 1, 9. So we confess our sins, we reflect upon the cross. We're also told that we're to, uh, to think about those who don't know Jesus. We're, we're, we're challenged as we take communion. As often as you take this, Paul writes, you're to proclaim the cross. Those are our marching orders. And so today, after the worship team has taken communion, we're going to sing a song as you guys are, are um, coming to receive the elements. What I would encourage you to do is just to come forward, get your elements, uh, the cracker, the juice, go back to your seat, take that time to sort of reflect, confess, ponder over these truths, pray, and then take the elements. And as I take the elements, I, I, we watched a movie here Friday night, um, Amazing Grace, the story of William Wilberforce, who was a, a, a mentor of, or no, he was a disciple. John Newton was his mentor. And John Newton was a slave trader who became a Christian who ultimately wrote the song Amazing Grace. And there's a scene in that movie that like, brought me to tears. I'm in the seat. Like I'm trying to stop Gideon from like eating Snickers bars. <clears throat> and then I'm all of a sudden just gripped in the movie and John Newton looks at William, uh, William Wilberforce and he says, there are two things that I know. He says, I'm a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. And that truth, if you allow it to impact you, you have nothing to do but to stand in awe of him. All week as I'm studying this, I'm thinking about this, one song, this old hymn, I Stand Amazed, kept coming to my head. And so after communion, we're going to sing a song, and then the very last song, I'd encourage you guys to stand up when it comes on or to stand up when you're ready. And the song, I Stand Amazed, I want to read the words to you so that when you're singing it, you understand what you're saying. I, I kind of like music. Kind of. I mean, I do like music. There are certain times when I find I listen to more music. Before I was a Christian, I listened to music in it, but I'm too ashamed to like go there. You know, like where I, I listen to punk and I listen to stuff and I still like, my family still acknowledges that if I'm going to the gym, I listen to some really wacky music. And so I'll listen to music before the gym, you know, try to get pumped up, try to wake up or whatever. And it's just sort of, music serves a very different purpose. And when I became a Christian and we started singing songs at church, I, I sort of viewed it the same way, like, oh, it's just trying to like pump us up, wake us up, because as soon as the pastor starts talking, I'm going to get sleepy. And so it's kind of like gets me really woken up, and then by the end I'll almost be asleep, and then we'll sing another song, and I'll be waking up. But then as I started walking with Christ, I realized we sing these songs because we're not just singing them to feel good. We're, they're worship. We are using music to worship our Creator. And in this song, what today we're going to sing at the very end, these are the words. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene, and I wonder how he could love me, a sinner, condemned, unclean. For me it was in the garden he prayed, not my will but thine. He had no tears for his own griefs, but sweat drops of blood for mine. 
He took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. When with the ransomed in glory, his face I at last shall see, t'will be my joy through the ages to sing of his love for me. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. And Father, we do thank you for your great love for us. Father, as we take communion today, I pray for each person here. Lord, if there are people here today that don't know you as Savior or unsure, I pray, Father, that you would help them to see your glorious grace. That salvation comes through belief alone, that you did it all for us. We thank you that salvation is not by our works, by us being good people. We thank you that you saved us as we were. And Father, for those of us who have accepted Christ as Savior, Lord, I ask that you would help us to see our sins. Lord, help us to see areas that we are resisting you still. Father, that we would confess them to you, that we we need your help. Father, we thank you for your body that was broken for us. We thank you that it's you that cleanses us. Father, we pray that as we take communion, you would bring people to our minds, people, our friends, our loved ones who don't know you. Father, we pray that you would help us, Lord, to, uh, to be a, a witness for you that somehow, some way, Lord, that we would um, model Christ-likeness in our lives, that we would be ready with a word of encouragement, and that ultimately, Lord, that we would be able to share Christ with them. Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in you. We thank you for your assurance. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.